Welcome to the Psych Experience. Welcome everyone to Psychast, the podcast for those who love psychology and psychiatry. Dr. Nadi, I just have one question. What the hell is wrong with benzodiazepines? Why are those drugs so bad for you? Okay. Uh, all right. That, that's uh, that's uh, that's an interesting. And I'm I'm glad we chose that today. Um, uh, I was I was more formally prepared, and, and and you just you just caught me off guard. But I, I can I can fix it. Surprise. <laughs> so um, so we spoke last session. Our session. You see, I'm still treating people. Um, no, we spoke last episode about how you know we have prescribing principles and how at times in psychiatry we kind of violate the same principles that we claim are in place right mm -hmm. um uh, like meaning you know so so with the benzodiazepines what the problem is well benzodiazepines they have been prescribed to people for freaking decades right mm -hmm. i think in the 70s there was this song uh, mama's little helper uh, the Rolling Stones, which is pretty much about Xanax. Yeah. And um, so, okay, so we can start talking about guidelines for the treatment of anxiety. Okay. Okay, so so the first line of treatment for generalized anxiety disorder are the antidepressants. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, oh, how come, right? Thought antidepressants are just for depression. Well, well and then, then again, we could say, well, why do you call them antidepressants if it's a group of medications that are quite different from each other? There's the SSRIs, FCNRIs, the dopamine and uh, norepinephrine, reuptake inhibitors, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then again, the overlap between generalized anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder from a diagnostic perspective is quite, is quite big. Mm -hmm. For a diagnosis of major depressive disorder, according to the SM, you need five symptoms of a group. And um, of those five symptoms, you can find four in the diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. So they have a lot in common. One of them is uh, restlessness or, you know, psychomotor agitation. They would be kind of synonyms. Um, being easily fatigued, that's in generalized anxiety disorder and sort of low energy levels kind of deal are part of major depressive disorder. You have impairment in attention in both of them difficulty concentrating or mind going blank in generalized anxiety disorder, right? And you have sleep disturbances. Mm -hmm. And insomnia is also a symptom of major depressive disorder. So they're not that different. Um, and then guidelines will suggest something. They'll say uh, you can prescribe benzodiazepines because they bring quick relief to anxiety. And it's quite true. Mm. Um, they do bring quick relief to anxiety. Um, but the guidelines will say do not prescribe for more than a month. And why is that? Well, I think two reasons. One is it's a medication that quickly, the body quickly develops a, a physiological dependence to it. Right? Um, and um, according to research, the physiological correlates of uh, anxiety do not quite improve past a month and a half. What am I talking about? Hmm. So we have some physiological correlates of anxiety. For example, pupillary dilation mm -hmm. in response to startling stimulus, uh, like boo, right? Um, or um, skin conductance, because when you're anxious, you start sweating a little bit more and electricity travels through your skin a little bit better mm -hmm. if you're anxious. 
Well, it just so happens that the benefit, the measurable benefits of benzodiazepines do not persist after a month and a half. And that would force you to increase the dose. Now, if you talk in the, in, and people listening to us now, if they're already working, they know that. And if they're about to work, they're going to want to know this. When you start a patient on benzodiazepine in about a few weeks or a month, he's going to say, oh my God, in the beginning, my man was the best thing ever. I was relaxed. Now it's not quite cutting. Can I increase the dose? And the reason for that is because being as highly addictive as this medication is, the body quickly develops tolerance. Most patients start with 0.5 twice a day or whatever. And by the time they're going to come to you, coming from another prescriber, they're going to be on freaking three or four milligrams a day of whatever. And that's a massive amount of benzodiazepines, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea of the bridge, there's, a, there's this metaphor of a bridge. You start an antidepressant, but it takes a few weeks to have its full benefit. In between, you can bridge it with benzodiazepines. Well, let me tell you why I don't like that concept. From a practical standpoint, it's unlikely that your antidepressants will ever bring you the same amount of relief that the first doses of benzos have given you. Right. So you're really not bridging. You know, you, when you drunk, jump from that bridge, the benzodiazepine bridge, the, 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 the ground where the antidepressants are going to be is 10 yards below. 10, you know, like freaking 50, I don't know, yards, feet, I don't know the ground. I'm a foreigner. So let's <laughs> we use, struggle with that, let's, right? use, let's use meters. It's like 20 meters above. Uh, so it's really no bridging. It's really sending you somewhere else, mm -hmm. right? And you can quite hope that antidepressants will bring you the level of benefit and relief. Not benefit. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said benefit. I should have said relief. And why do I say relief? Because if you're very anxious, here it is, you're a musician. I am. You have stepped in the in the stage at some point in your life completely freaking out. Oh, every time. Every time. So yeah. have that. <laughs> so at some point you said, I'm gonna have a scotch before I go on stage. Bad idea. <laughs> you may impair your performance as we know, but damn relaxes you. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. The problem is if you keep doing that every time you go, every time you go to the stage, you have to increase the amount of booze you're having. Mm -hmm. If you do it too much. If you do every so often, the benefit is maintained. But it's hard for you to have a learning if you keep drinking. Mm -hmm. You're not going to... Why? Because to, I'm not going to go there. But anyway, desensitization involves learning. You go to the stage and now you are confident. You have done this a thousand times. You're relaxed enough to do it. You're not going to freak out as much as you did in the beginning. Mm -hmm. You still freak out, not as much as you did in the beginning. If you drink every time you go, that learning is prevented. All right, but that, that's another discussion. Um, that's pertinent to the fact that benzodiazepines make PTSD worse in time because the task of PTSD is learn that now you're safe and you can't learn that if you're using benzos. And that's proven by a meta-analysis. We can, we can cover that another episode. So, so now you have a medication that brings you quick benefit, quick relief, is considered as a bridge, it's there as a first line. You can use it right in the beginning of the treatment and don't persist using. What's the problem with that concept? The problem with that concept is, is the same as why don't we give chocolate milk to a kid that is breastfeeding? Hmm. Because he's not going to want to breastfeed anymore. Because chocolate milk is the second best thing in life. 
What is the first one? Whatever you choose. <laughs> it's hard to remove chocolate milk from the second position. Okay. It's magical. Chocolate is magic. It's amazing, right? Um, it's sweet. It, oh boy. So, so that's why. So now you give a patient a benzodiazepine. He experiences this quick relief. Within a few weeks, he needs a higher dose. Mm -hmm. And it's not his fault. He's not a bad guy. It's just his body got really adapted, quickly adapted to the medication, which, by the way, binds to GABA receptors, GABA mm -hmm. receptors in the brain, which is the site. It doesn't matter. We don't need to know what GABA receptors are. All we have to do is, all we have to know is that the site in which the benzodiazepines bind in the brain is the same one that alcohol does. The freaking same. And if you are an alcoholic patient and you need to detox and you go to the hospital and you start having the shakes, guess what they give you? Benzodiazepines. <laughs> That's how analog they are, right? That's how they, they, they are very much the same freaking thing. Like a lot of doctors jokingly refer to benzodiazepines as alcohol in pills. Mm -hmm. Why would we do that? Now the patient, sorry, the patient is suffering for a while. The patient has been suffering for a while with anxiety, mm -hmm. right? I don't want my patient suffering. But I also know that the goals of treatment with anxiety have to be modest because for most people, anxiety is a trait, not only a state. Mm -hmm. Okay, some people are just more anxious than others. People with generalized anxiety disorder in adulthood, frequently, most of them have been anxious kids. Our hopes of completely eradicating that thing are a little bit nutty. I'm sorry to say, you, you've got to be realistic about mm -hmm. things. And we spoke about that with depression, right? Yeah. The, the absence of freaking symptoms. Come on, right? Uh, the complete state of well-being with the, the World Health Organization. What the hell, right? So, so, so anxious people come to you and now you're trying to help them. They come to you for help and you're going to expose them to an addictive medication. Now, most patients do not develop addiction. They don't develop addiction in the sense that what we define as addiction. They don't go all day long trying to get the drug. They don't have like escalating higher doses. They do have a need for higher doses and that's seen in clinical practice every freaking day. But they don't mess up their personal lives. They don't go, hey man, do you have a business? All the behavior package of addiction is not there. Mm -hmm. But they have a physiological dependence. And if you stop that damn thing, they're going to have a seizure. They're going to end up in the emergency department. It's a catastrophic stuff. You can die of over of withdrawal from benzodiazepine. So, oh, your friend comes to you and say, hey, man, let's go to Florida, man. The weather is great. I want to introduce you a chick there or something like that. And you go and you forget to call your doctor for a supply of your benzos and you run out of this damn thing when you're away. Mm -hmm. You're going to pay a high price. Now, this is the kind of drug we're giving to people. This kind of drug we're giving to people in psychiatry. For me, it's very difficult to accept that idea. Mm -hmm. The concept of bridging doesn't, as I said, it doesn't quite match because it's unlikely that the antidepressants will get you to the, to the state that a shot of tequila gives you, mm -hmm. right? So there's no bridging. There's this quick relief. And now I want more. I want to say this. I don't want to say this, but I'll say it. Just, just for the, please give me, a, give me some credit. It's hard to give up the candy. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Now that you have tasted. We spoke about how, why alcoholism is such a problem. And is the reason is because everybody gets exposed to alcohol. And if you have the right wiring in your brain, you're, you're, you're go through that sieve and now you're stuck to it. Right. Why would we expose? Why would we take the risk? This patient has been suffering for years. 
I understand we want to relieve, we want to help them. We have clean choices. They may not be as good from a relief point of view, but the damage they cause in the long term is much smaller. Mm -hmm. Tapering a patient from benzodiazepines is terribly difficult, and we have a prescribing crisis of benzodiazepines. The number of people out there taking benzodiazepines chronically, and you're not going to find a guideline saying that's okay to do. Mm -hmm. For example, for panic attacks, if you take a, a dose a week or so, every time you take is going to work. It's going to be the same blessing of the first time you took, which, by the way, is true for pot, which, by the way, is true for alcohol. Mm -hmm. If you drink alcohol once a week, you feel good, you feel happy, you sleep better, right? If you're not binging like a crazy man, right? Um, but if you start reproduce, you, you try to reproduce that benefit every day, of your week. Now you start having sleep disturbances, you start having anxiety because you're going through micro withdrawals. Here's an example. We use this with cocaine and Adderall. The guy comes to your office and he says what? I'm anxious, I can't sleep, I'm cranky, I can't focus. Mm -hmm. By the way, I drink three, four nips a day of vodka. No mystery here. Everybody listening to this podcast now is going to say what? Yeah, buddy. You gotta stop drinking. You know what are what are your chances of treating the sleep and the and the and the anxiety with an antidepressant if the guy's drinking four times a day? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's an obsolete concept to uh, um, uh, wait until sobriety to treat. I agree, it's obsolete, but our results otherwise are zero. Mm -hmm. Treating anxiety in people with active substance use issues or depression, our yield. Come on. With a, with, a, with, a, with a sober population, our yield is 20% remission, mm -hmm. right? With someone actively using a substance that messes up with their, with their mood, with their anxiety, with their brain, brain chemistry, with their personal life, if you will, what are the chances? Now, the patient comes to your office and says the same thing. I can't sleep at night. I'm irritable and anxious. I can't focus. And I take Xanax three times a day. There is no freaking difference. They bind to the same receptors. They do virtually the same thing in your brain. Equally addictive, you can treat the withdrawal of one with the other one mm -hmm. perfectly, with a, with, a, with a perfect overlap of effects. So in other words, that's the problem with benzodiazepines. People come for you for help, and they leave the, 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 your office with the potential for an addiction. All right, and I believe you do have a board question for us, right, Dr. Nardi? Yeah, okay, so I do have a board question. And, uh, oh, great. So let's assume, okay, um, the, here's the question. A patient, uh, a 30-year-old female patient presents to your office complaining of insomnia. What's your first line of treatment? First option, you prescribe trazodone for sleep. Mm -hmm. Second choice, you prescribe low-dose mirtazapine for sleep. Uh, third choice, you restrict the use of the bed for sleep and intimacy only. And the fourth one is you obtain a sleep study. And the answer is, believe it or not, the behavioral, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy of sleep or sleep hygiene, mm -hmm. either one of those. You restrict the use of the bed for intimacy and sleep only. Um, a lot of things, um, you know, and, and you guys are going to see that when you're working out there, people come to you with insomnia frequently. The first choice is definitely not a drug. The first choice is... You go to bed every day at the same time. You get out of bed every day at the same time. Don't sleep until you feel rested because every time you do that, likelihood is you're not going to fall asleep when you go to bed the next night. 
right? You're going to increase your sleep latency, which is the time between putting your head to the pillow to falling asleep. So you wake up every day at the same freaking time. Get out of bed before you completely relax. Have a routine. Second is don't read, don't watch TV in bed. Bed is for kinky stuff and for sleeping. And that's it. And that's the first choice of treatment. That's the first step in treatment of, of insomnia, as opposed to giving any drug or a benzodiazepine or a Z drug like Ambien or a Lunesta, Zopiclone or whatever it's called. All right. Very hot topic. I'd like to invite all of the listeners to check out our website, nepmi.org. We have a lot of content right there, right, Dr. Nardi? We have a few videos showing... Um, we have a couple, uh, maybe what, four videos, maybe five, I'm not sure, showing what the content and the kind of insight we try to achieve in our mentorship program. The kind of, you know, um, we're trying to bring common sense back to psychiatry and match it with uh, data or to, with guidelines. Um, the other thing is it's a, we have a... a, a, a an email in our website absolutely so if any of our listeners has a question for yes you can send us your question uh by email through info at nepmi.org yeah and any any points you like to make if you heard something i said that was not right or you want to author you like to quote and say dr nardi so and so said this and that which goes against what you're saying and and i i would love that because this is a uh, as as we would say as it as it's said in medicine, life is short, the art is long, and the experience is fleeting. Wow, very inspirational for the. I know it's not <laughs> mine though. Episode, I think right? I think it was Hippocrates <laughs> who said something like that. All right, Doctor Nardi, very nice to have you here, and I'm looking forward to meeting you view again next week. See you guys then. This podcast was offered by NEPMI.org.